Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. My name is John McDonald. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation with Greg Davignon, President and CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia. Part two starts now. I want to jump quickly into the budgets. Um, I mean, it's you. You can. I'm sure you can give a lot of depth on there. Is there a key couple? Maybe your your biggest concern and the thing you like the most uh, from the from the provincial side. Yeah. So so I'll start overall with both budgets. As you know, they both came out within 24 hour period of time. Um, there's some good things in each of the federal and provincial budgets. Uh, specifically, focus on childcare. Um, uh, I, I'm the vice chair of the YMCA. We're the biggest childcare provider in Western Canada, as an example. And I can tell you, we could probably double the number of spaces we've got to meet demand. Um, and, and what gets missed in the debate is, as often gets characterized as this $10 a day daycare, which is important for some families because of the cost. But the big driver of the cost is actually having the space to house children safely. And then also the talented people that are trained to be able to look after children of varying ages. And those two things are provincial domain, not federal domain. So um, we're very supportive of uh, people getting low cost childcare that need it. Not everyone needs it. When I was raising my boys with my wife, uh, we didn't need that help, thankfully, but some people do. So I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think, you know, you could provide more help to some versus others. But the big issue is you need to create the space or access, if you will, and you need to create the talent to be able to look after people and do it uh, with a um, living wage. And so in that context, um, the challenge for the federal budget is that while it promised this, they have to get into a negotiation with the provinces now to deliver it. And there's a lot of provinces in Canada that just don't have the money. And so that's gonna be a challenge. BC, I think will be an early adopter, but again, the discussion I think is gonna be on how much federal money goes into building the spaces and uh, training people as opposed to the cost of it, because the cost will come down with more spaces you've got. Um, the province also did some really good work, I think, on innovation. So they focused, uh, I was part of the Premier's announcement on NBC, which is a half a billion dollar innovative investment fund, arm's length of government that will help scale BC businesses. And Canada generally does a really poor job on taking uh, an oversized number of ideas that we generate in Canada through research and entrepreneurs and making those ideas into big profitable companies. And the reason that I say big profitable companies is that those firms pay on average uh, 35 to 40% higher wages. They also uh, represent about 85% of exports, which actually helps us pay the bills and keep a high quality of life. And they're responsible for the vast majority of research and development that creates new ideas and new products and new services. And in doing so, um, they also, uh, big companies are massively um, impactful on philanthropy, on building out more cohesive communities. I mean, TELUS just announced, as an example, uh, their significant fund uh, for social purpose to support people at risk in communities. Well, that happens because TELUS is a globally successful company with uh, thousands and thousands of employees, but all kinds of interesting lines of business. And you see that in Seattle with uh, with Microsoft and uh, Costco and other companies that are so ingrained into the fabric of social cohesion and, and societal uh, benefit going forward. So um, I think the province did a good job. It's going to help scale companies access to capital, but also support 
um, rapidly growing firms that need talent, which we've got a, that's one of our other secret uh, power or superpowers, I guess you could say, is we've got really talented, educated, diverse workforces. Um, the thing that's common with both the federal and provincial bu budget, though, that is very worrisome, uh, less so at the provincial level, because we started at a better place of debt to GDP ratio, is <clears throat> massive amounts of debt and without a plan. And I'm quite critical of the federal government, as have other economists and commentators. Uh, Kevin Lynch, who I have a lot of time for, ran the um, Privy Council office, just came out this week in a National Post article. Um, there's no plan. There's a lot of funding for baked-in costs, which are going to need more revenue in the future. But our debt-to-GDP ratio now is 50% uh, up from 30% just a year and a bit ago. And so what that means is that if there's a shock to the system, another financial crisis, have, you know, heaven forbid, another pandemic, uh, hyperinflation going up, the interest rate charges on that debt, let alone the room for governments to then do what they've done over the last year, is very limited. And that creates real risk for Canadians and for Canadian business and for our economy. So we've got now over $1.4 trillion in debt. And my kids that are in their late teens and early 20s, their kids' kids are going to be paying that off. And we're also uh, already a high and I would say inefficient tax system in Canada and British Columbia. And what this means is it just puts more pressure on the fact that now people that are driving the innovation economy are now paying 54 cents of every dollar that they make at the high end of the scale. So if I can go to other places in the world that don't take more than half of my money, I'm going to do that because we've learned through COVID you can live and work anywhere. So there's risk around talent. Uh, and we're also slow to get things done. So the federal government didn't do anything around how we actually have a plan for growth. It takes 22 years to get a mine built in Canada. Well, that's not acceptable. Or if I take it locally in Victoria and Vancouver, it can take six to eight years to get a building permitted and built. And so we've got housing needs now, uh, rental housing and housing for seniors and others. We can't wait that long. And so we've learned through COVID that with common purpose, uh, collaborating together at speed, we can get outcomes that work together, but the budgets don't actually think about that. And what's even more worrisome is that there's a mentality of, well, when we start to recover, well, the reality is the global economy and BC's economy started to recover in Q4 of last year. You know, we're going to see 8.4% growth in China, the US probably seven to six and a half to seven percent. Um, we're seeing it commodity prices now where forest products are, you know, three times higher than average because of global demand and uh, shortage of supply. So we need a plan now to not just get out of COVID, but what are we going to do to differentiate ourselves in a more competitive, fractured global marketplace? And we've got so much to offer and so much opportunity. Uh, I worry that if we wait too long, the world's not waiting for us. They're just going to bypass us and we'll have lost the opportunity for our kids and our kids' kids. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, pre I appreciate you flushing that out. It's certainly, I had a follow-up question about debt that you already covered. So that's, that's great. It, yeah, it is very concerning. And I mean, even for, you know, our businesses, the, the companies that we would deal with are a little bit lower to the ground um than the the top 260 that that your guys are representing um but there's there's a lot of a lot of fear and uncertainty about who is going to be paying for this because you know like the uk they cranked up the corporate tax rate the us they just cranked up the corporate tax rate and so you just kind of know it wasn't this budget but at some point we're going to be paying you know yeah and, and you know to your point the uk came out with a plan uh eight weeks ago 
you know, brought industry in and said, how do we, how do we grow the economy? How do we differentiate ourselves? Boris Johnson has said, we want to be the life science driver in the world. And they're doing some phenomenal things in life sciences. And ironically, some of that started in British Columbia, like their genomic program actually studied what happened at Genome BC. And then they put a hundred million pounds into, into the project. The other one is, um, you know, this is a dirty secret in BC, but you know, we led the country in 2019 in economic growth largely, but we grew by 2.7%, but 2.2 of that 2.7% was driven by large energy and private sector projects. So in other words, a half of 1% roughly uh, was grown through normal economic means. The rest of it was grown by investment. And we don't do a great job in Canada or BC on being an open place to host capital. We're too complex, too costly, take too much time. So our point is let's find, as we have through COVID to move quickly, let's find more efficient ways, not to cut corners, but to cut cost and complexity. And we've just allowed the overburden of process to build up. So we're really good at process now and we never worry about getting the outcome. Um, let's focus on, let's getting the outcome and let's get it quickly. Let's include indigenous partners on the land base in those solutions. But in doing so, um, speed is of the essence, but let's make sure it's got a high integrity so that we're protecting our environment and making sure the communities are resilient going forward. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. One of the last questions I want to ask you here, the, the last question about the, the provincial economy is on the supply chain issue. Um, you know, right now it's obviously the price of wood is, is, is significant. You mentioned toilet paper and these other things. Are there opportunities for kind of a more of a made in BC or made in Canada approach to some of these challenges so that we don't um, get hit as hard maybe as, as we have in this time? Well, there are. Um... I'm not a big fan, frankly, of the made in BC uh, conversation. The reality is we've got 5 million people uh, and our GDP is half the GDP of Houston, Texas. <laughs> so um, there's some things that we're really good at, but we don't need to have a made in BC solution for everything. And frankly, historically, British Columbians and Canadians have been really good at adopting interesting technology and we create a couple of pieces of technology going forward. So let's not be all things to all people because we practically just don't have the capacity to do that. And I outlined some things where we do have some real strengths. Uh, and, and you mentioned construction. Construction is one of them. We're actually in North America. Uh, some of the developers here are the most sophisticated players in the marketplace, including engineering firms like Stantec and Lightcore and, and others are world class. Um, but back to the supply chain piece, uh, there's a whole bunch of pieces to that. And it depends on the, um, uh, the commodity or the sector or others. But you remember, supply chains are two-way instruments, right? It's imports and exports. And we're living in a world where a lot of the international institutions, particularly under the Trump administration, got weakened, like the WTO and others. Uh, so the Biden administration is trying to build those back, but it's going to take some time and then overlay climate through the Paris Accord, uh, which also adds complexity to it in the right way of reducing climate emissions. But there's all kinds of technology, uh, technical public policy issues that are come to bear where shockingly countries are going to look after their own self-interest. So I think climate's going to be the next non-tariff trade barrier. Uh, so one of the key things and opportunities for us on exports is verifying the carbon intensity of our products. So I said that we've done that work in BC so that we can actually be the solution going forward. 
Uh, and in that context, if I'm Japan, which is a net importer of most of the natural inputs and energy, uh, why wouldn't I, as Canada, do a bilateral trade agreement with Japan, which we already have a trading relationship on, and say, look, we want to buy 25% uh, of everything we import uh, has to be carbon intensity below this level. And we're going to do a trading relationship with Canada to be a preferred supplier of that low carbon content technology and goods. So that's one pathway to solve the problem. And BC can be a massive opportunity and partner in that solution with Korea, China, Japan, uh, the US uh, through our trading corridor up and down the Cascadia corridor. Uh, also the ASEAN group of countries in Southeast Asia, uh, which are the fastest growing markets and our typical trading partners uh, historically. The other is infrastructure. So there's two aspects of this, building it, and then also uh, creating smart infrastructure. So YVR uh, gets ranked annually as one of the best airports in the world, uh, year after year after year after year. And they move people, but they also move goods. But what's important in that, in the evolution, because of the strengths we've got in BC around what's called IoT, so connecting um, data sets through sensors and information. And the digital supercluster is located here in Vancouver, and that's what they focus on. How do we actually digitize decision making, particularly on uh, the economy and in infrastructure, uh, but also life sciences? And in that space, uh, so think about YVR and think about all the trucks that move goods around to service the local economy in the lower mainland, in the Victoria and Vancouver Island, in the interior. Think about all the airlines that move things around. Think about drone technology that's starting to evolve. How do we connect all those things so that we actually, uh, for example, can anticipate if a truck's gonna break down because uh, the carburetor only has so much lifespan, or if it's an electric vehicle, the battery only has so much lifespan, that IoT can say, okay, well, great, you're gonna be in Kamloops on Thursday the 9th. We're gonna have a carburetor or we're gonna have an electric battery there for you so the downtime of that equipment is minimal. But also think about how we connect the information and use AI to create efficiencies on global shipping uh, fleets and containers where every container has an RF tag. And so we know that Canadian Tire in Ontario needs this lawn chair on Thursday afternoon, the 14th. You can track it all the way through the system so that if I'm a consumer online, I know that I'm going to get it on that date I want it because I know that it's coming through Vancouver in a really efficient means. So we can own some of that technology solution on smart infrastructure and connecting it all, both on transit, but also on uh, commercial movement of goods. And then uh, that falls into rail and some of the ancillary equipment going forward. So there's already examples of that here uh, and companies from Asia that have come into this marketplace because of the strength of the talent and some of the technology that's in place. And then the last is there's some domestic things we could be doing here to build out resiliency. So I talked about agri-food and agri-tech earlier. Um, you know, the Netherlands produces so much more food per acre than we do in British Columbia. So thinking about how we use the agricultural land base more effectively, half of the agricultural lands in BC under the uh, Agricultural Lands Act doesn't even get used. Uh, so we need to be smarter. It was a really good frame in the 1970s that was put into place, but there's lands that are to be used for technology firms that could grow far more food per acre using vertical technology and other means that I'm aware of, like companies like Cubic Farm or Terramera. There's a myriad of them on the island. 
Um, we just need to think about it. So think about the wine industry 30 years ago and how it's transformed viticulture. We could do the same thing on broad array of food that we need for our own domestic consumption that's healthy, that's clean, and again, becomes a massive export sector because people trust in Canada. But you could use blockchain to say, okay, well, that barrier, that head of lettuce from uh, the Cowichan Valley going into Australia, we know where it was grown. We knew how it was grown. We knew that it's pesticide free. Uh, and there's a premium that gets paid for that. So there's massive opportunities on the export side, but also domestically to keep ourselves healthy and safe. Wow. It's just, it's so crazy. It's the level of depth that you're going into is a lot of stuff that we just don't normally cover. So it's very cool to hear that. Is there anything- well, we're, we're in a hockey stick world. The industrial revolution and in technology is, it's gonna double every 18 months and we're at another fold of that doubling coming up. And so we need to seize the opportunity. We've got all the raw ingredients, uh, literally in ag, but, but and natural resources. But uh, the people that move the quickest and take advantage of that are, are going to have a better quality of life and a better environment and a more cohesive society. And that's where we're really focusing our attention. Well, that's fantastic. I'm about to jump into these the final four questions just about your your some of the personal stuff you do. Is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to highlight? I, I talk way too much, so <laughs> John, I appreciate the platform, but uh, no, I just, I, I, I'm a, as you can tell, I'm a passionate British Columbia and a passionate Canadian. I get frustrated that we just get a bit lethargic and complacent and, and we got to pick up our game a little bit because the world has. Um, I, you know, the U.S. was a bit of a laggard on some of the things we've talked about today, uh, but they are moving rapidly on uh, ESG, which, as you know, is a framework for measuring social impact but also through the lens of environmental uh, sustainability, inclusiveness, uh, measuring material outcomes of your business, private and public, and then also the governance to make sure you do it properly. So we're doing a big series on that starting this month, carrying through to October, where we've got some significant opportunities to pursue because there's over $100 trillion of money that is looking to invest in ESG-based companies. Those are companies that are reporting out uh, how they're improving communities, how they're improving their processes, and how they're reducing their environmental footprint, including climate. And we could be a material opportunity to receive that. But we could also be a material uh, technology innovator on companies that are striving to the things that we've done here. Like 96% of our electricity is clean in BC. The rest of the world would love to get there over the next 30 years. So how do we leverage that on attracting companies that want to come into this marketplace, use some of the, that electricity and our talent and build up companies that can actually have a demonstrable impact on a better quality world uh, and a cleaner world. Well, that's great. Um, I will be looking forward to that series. I'll throw a link into um, a release about it in the, the description here. Last uh, quick ones I've got for you. Could you briefly speak about your, how you approach personal and professional development? Lots of reading, podcasts, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, well, for me, it's kind of a whole bunch of things. So I, I'm a believer that, uh, first of all, personal development, lifelong learning should be the cornerstone of everyone. Um, be curious. So I, I like to put myself in positions, and frankly, I get lots of opportunity to do it, uh, to meet people and to listen to what really interesting people are doing and learn and just ask questions. And don't be afraid to ask the dumb question because it often leads to really interesting conversations. So for me, I'm just in this really privileged place where I get to talk to 
global and local leaders and seeing global trends. Our policy and economics team here is brilliant. And some of the data that I get to see and the work that they do really helps inform my thinking. And then I'm, as I said, as a convener, I'm talking to indigenous leaders, community leaders, and others around just getting different perspectives. Sometimes it's so easy and you see that on Twitter, you get in an echo chamber of people that agree with you. Um, make sure you're going to talk to people that you know are gonna have a different perspective to you and it helps shape your thinking. And I firmly believe that we're in a world now of collaborative democracy. And what that means is governments just can't do things by themselves anymore or do it by fiat. Uh, you know, even Putin's having issues around that approach. But uh, what that means is that uh, business and the private sector, governments, uh, not-for-profits and others have to come together to find collaboration at speed with common purpose to get outcomes. So lifelong learning is one of them. Two is uh, I involve myself on some not-for-profit boards just because not-for-profits have a different perspective on life in terms of the interface that they have with people and the impact they're having on people and families. So I'm the vice chair of the Y, it's just a fantastic experience and really kind of social, social cohesion. Uh, it's kind of the mortar that holds families and communities together uh, in all kinds of ways, healthy ways, educational ways, mental health ways, but also, uh, as I said earlier, childcare. Uh, I do some formal work, so I'm starting the ICD program, which is the corporate director uh, program. I, I, I'm, I read really interesting books, but not a lot of them because I read so much during the course of my day. I love podcasts and I like I wake up every morning and read a whole bunch of consolidated uh, information and news sources, which is uh, really helpful. And then I do some deeper dives. And then uh, lastly is um, uh, the, the importance I think on, on professional development is always challenge yourself. Um, it's easy to be safe and go jump into the deep end on something you don't know, volunteer your time or put your hand up if you're in a company and you don't know anything about it, but you've got some skills that you could attribute to it. So most of the progressive companies in the world, Amazon and others, they're actually building teams to solve problems and they don't want people with all the same skill sets. They want people with different perspectives. And so if you bring a perspective, it's not that you're an expert, but you'll have expertise in things that no one else around the table will have or life experiences. So put yourself in a position of risk and just take on the challenge and you'll learn. You won't be perfect, but learning is uh, often done with failure more than it is with success. That's awesome. Uh, a single app or piece of software you can't live without? Uh, as I said to you at the outset, I, I never give a short answer. Um, uh, every morning I look at my Fitbit to see how I slept. Uh, I go to the Economist Espresso, which is kind of a quick piece. I love Quartz, which is an information consolidator on global issues and economic issues and societal issues. I'm a big sports fan, big Canucks fan, uh, and big Seattle Mariners fan. Um, but I love the MLB app. I can watch. Uh, baseball games and get caught up to speed on on data. So those are kind of the my four go to's when I wake up in the morning. So. That's awesome. Best personal advice you've received? I, you know what, my whole career, John, I, I've been so privileged to be with people that have taken me under their wing and give me opportunities. So I, I've had so much good advice. Tough to winnow it down. Um, uh, some of the best advice I've got uh would be put people first and help them be successful and the success you get 
will come back. Uh, often in my life, I've seen tenfold. Uh, my grandpa used to have a line. He was a businessman, had a bunch of uh, hardware stores, and just a really thoughtful guy. And he used to say, worrying, Greg, is like paying interest on a debt you may never owe. Focus on the outcome, not on the process. Um, and then uh, my favorite quote is from Theodore Roosevelt, which is, far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by multiple failures. So go go be bold, make things happen. And uh, you're not going to get it right all the time, but course correct and do it quickly. Um, and then, you know, just treat people the way you want to be treated. Oh, that's awesome. Um, the very last one for you, favorite restaurant on Vancouver Island. Um, you, may, well, you may be able to say VC because I don't, I don't Well, you know what? There's so, many, there's so many awesome restaurants on Vancouver Island, and uh, I love food. So it, it's tough to win a one one down. I mean, there's great places in Nanaimo. There's great places uh, in the Couch and Valley and in the peninsula in Victoria. Um, I go to Victoria quite a bit, just working with the government. Uh, I love Sam's Deli uh, and the shrimp and avocado sandwich is a go-to for me at lunchtime if I got time to get over there. Um, I like, I love Italian food, so I like uh, Il Terrazzo that's been there for a long, long time in downtown Victoria. There's, there's so many cool, you know, gastronomic brew pubs and, you know, I, I mean, it's, t the food scene on Vancouver Island is awesome and it's growing and, and the same thing's happening in other parts of BC. So, uh, fantastic, but, you know, love Sam's, uh, shrimp and avocado sandwich. So. Thanks for stopping by from the trenches, the business examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.